uh, go for launch. Five. Quiet, numbskulls. I'm broadcasting. Anything can happen in the next half hour. Four. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. This whole thing is insane. Three. Quiet, please. I am analyzing. Where's the kaboom? Two. There was supposed to be an earth-shattering kaboom. One. Shatner Take us out. is Captain James T. Kirk. Leonard Nimoy is Mr. Spock. DeForest Kelly is Dr. Leonard Bones McCoy. James Doohan is Lieutenant Commander Montgomery Scott. George Takei is Lieutenant Commander Sulu. Major Barrett is Dr. Christine Chappell. Walter Koenig is Lieutenant Pavel Chekhov. Michel Nichols is Lieutenant Commander Uhura. Stephen Collins is Commander Willard Decker. Persis Kambata is Lieutenant Ilya. Roddenberry's production of a Robert Wise film. Greetings, my fellow galactic travelers, and welcome back to Planet 8. This is your mission commander, Larry, speaking to you from our hidden base. Chief Engineer Bob is here by my side, as always, in the command center, and circling Planet 8 in our orbital spy satellite is Reconnaissance Officer Karen. And on this episode of Planet 8, we are going boldly where no one has gone before. Well, actually, I guess many people have gone before. We're going to be talking about the franchise itself, Star Trek, specifically the motion picture. Near and dear to some of our hearts and not so much to others. <laughs> Straight away, let's kick it up to the satellite, Karen. Uh what would you like to open up with with the motion picture? Well, so you know I love this movie. Um, Indeed. it's uh, It was the first Star Trek movie. It was one of those things where it was like, wow, they're making a Star Trek movie. Um, mm-hmm. I remember reading in Starlog magazine, which was our version of the geek internet back then. Um, you know, first it was like it was going to be a TV show, and that was great. And then it was going to be a movie, and that was great. And, you know, it kind of went back and forth. And, um, but, you know, first in 75, they, Paramount wanted to make a film, and so Roddenberry started working on it. And, and there's this whole history um, of what they were going to do. And Roddenberry had this idea... And people will tell you, you know, Gene Roddenberry was good at a lot of things. He had a lot of ideas. He was a good producer. He wasn't necessarily the greatest writer. And so he had a lot of concepts that he would hit on again and again. And you can kind of see this in things he did. He had this concept called the God thing. And he wanted to have this story about this uh, ship coming back to Earth and basically it turns out that kind of our religions had been based on this ship that would return to Earth, and it had this artificial intelligence, and it gave mankind religion, basically. And mm-hmm. and at the, you know, and 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 reading some of these different uh, interviews with different people, like John Poville, who worked with Roddenberry and Harold Livingston, and essentially at one point, you know, there was even a version of this script where 
this this intelligence manifested as a version of Jesus Christ, and and Kirk, Captain Kirk winds out uh, winds up slugging it out with him on the bridge. So you know you now can that, see that now that I would have wanted to see. You would pay to see that. Unfortunately, I would pay good money to see that. Yeah, Paramount didn't really go with that idea. Um, so they kept working on the you know script ideas, and then. Um, you know, they came up with another idea. John Povell came up with this idea and involved time travel. And uh, depending on who you talk to, it might have involved Spock uh, going through with... First, they, they wound up altering time so that JFK was not assassinated, but then the Federation was never formed and all these bad things happened. And then Spock wound up having to shoot JFK. So again, the Par- Paramount Studios said, nah, we're going to pass on that. Not too excited about that idea um and then eventually these other writers chris bryant and alan scott were brought on and they were going to work with philip kaufman who was at that time a hot director he uh was uh went on to do invasion of body snatchers with nimoy Mm -hmm. Uh, they were coming up with all these ideas and they wanted to do a really high concept stories they they were thinking about things like 2001 they wanted to do a high concept story and they were going to do time travel they were going to wanted to do something that looked at you know what does it mean to be human they were going to focus on Spock but they did have a thing where the Enterprise crew would go back in time to the beginning of mankind and they would bring mankind fire and all this crazy stuff and that was going to be called planet of the titans and so uh in the midst of this going on before they even got everything finished paramount suddenly did a u-turn this was in 77 and they said no we decided we're going to do a tv series because they were thinking of launching their network and that's when the whole phase two comes on i know we've talked about star trek phase two so then they started working on putting together um sets for that so the rudimentary version of the engine room that we see in the the finished star trek motion picture began with the the column and the long shaft and all that for the engines the warp engines they started working on costumes and all that and then within about three months of that then they do another u-turn and then they said oh we're going to make a movie and that's when we really started going in the direction of star trek the motion picture Mm -hmm. but i remember but yeah, as a kid, you know, reading about it and everything, I know, and I know you guys had your uh, memories of it too. It didn't really matter to me. It was like I just wanted more Star Trek, and I wanted right. the, the characters, right? Because I think that was the main thing at that time. Star Trek was about Kirk and Spock and Scotty and McCoy and Uhura and and uh, Sulu. Maybe not so much Chekhov, but, you know, all the characters, <laughs> I wanted them back for Walter. And, and I wanted them on the Enterprise, right? So whatever they were going to do, you know, I was on board with it. So so are you, ca- are you kind of putting Chekhov in a category with like Lieutenant Kyle and Yeoman Rand? And <laughs> you know, I like Chekhov more now. I think when I was a kid, I was a little less pro Chekhov. Um, and I don't know why. I don't know what it was. Maybe it was like, I felt like maybe he was the Gilligan of Star Trek. Oh. <laughs> well, uh, let us not forget Dr. Mabenga. It's a yeah. crewman that we'd see once or twice. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, you know, it was just the excitement of, of bringing those guys back. And, and it's interesting to kind of dig into it and see all the travails they had. But from the outside, it was just exciting to know that you were going to get to see them again, right? And I don't know right. what. So, how were you guys? What were your thoughts when it was well, going that, on back you know, then? So, you know, back then, I was going to going to Star Trek conventions pre motion picture. So this was uh, probably seventy four, seventy five when they first started having them, and uh, yeah, depending on who the guest was at the convention. They'd say, well, we're going to do a TV show, and everybody would cheer. And then you go to the next (laughs) one, and they're like, well, we're doing a movie, and then everybody would cheer. And then you go to the next one, and they're like, well, no, we've decided TV show again. So I was kind of going back and forth for a while uh, until they announced the motion picture. But the funny thing back then is Jimmy Doohan, he was great on stage. Oh, yeah. And he was a big mainstay of a lot of those conventions. 
but what would happen is he had the mustache. Uh-huh. And so he'd like, he'd ask people in the audience, so should Scotty have a mustache? <laughs> and everyone would cheer and supposedly hey, they had petitions going, let Scotty keep his mustache and all that. Which he did actually in the movie, he had the mustache, but... Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think, and like as Karen alluded to earlier, or Larry alluded to earlier, I'm not a big fan of the movie. Now, I remember when it came out, it was really exciting and everyone was, oh, yeah, movie, and you know. But Star Wars had already come out. And I think Gene Rod, where Gene Roddenberry went down the wrong path, whether you agree or not, is I remember distinctly in an interview, or it might have even been in a convention, where he was saying that Star Wars is all about ray guns and action and fighting. But Star Trek, it's about the characters, and it's about the message. And so he almost went the exact opposite route to where there was no action and there was no excitement in the movie. It was like, it was like a, well, it was a rehash of The Changeling, basically, with Nomad becoming V'ger and much, much bigger than, than the TV budget for the episode. But, um, yeah, I just remember going to the theater. I remember lining up in this theater in Palo Alto, and they're having a big premiere of Star Trek, the motion picture, and going in, and it's like, the opening is great. I love the, the Klingon battle cruisers and the music. That's probably one of my favorite pieces of Star Trek music, the Jerry Goldsmith Klingon theme that they play. And it was all kind of down from there. But, uh, yeah, I think, you know, you had Star Wars to thank for Star Trek becoming a motion picture, but you also had Star Wars to thank for leading Roddenberry down a, uh, a very, uh, I want to say cerebral, but it was more a lethargic path. That's my, that's my thoughts. Thank you, Bob. (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead. Disagree. uh, No, no. I I hear what you're saying. And, you know, without, uh, or before I get into the history of it, I know when Star Trek II came out, The Wrath of Khan, everyone was like, oh, my God, this is so much better. Well, yeah, that was what saved the franchise, basically. Well, Well, it's it's more action. Uh, You know, it's, it's a different kind of story with those characters that we all know and love. Um, what were you going to say, Karen? I heard a well before I... Well, I was going to say that people often say that uh, the motion picture didn't do well, but it actually it made $139 million. I mean, it was a, it actually was a box office hit when it, it came was. out. People just don't think that anymore because it gets so much crap. But it, right. it actually was the, a big hit. It was. One of the things that Paramount did is all the production costs for Phase 2, the television show got added to the production cost of the motion picture. So it was just production on Star Trek, whatever that was going to be. Yeah. So for what the motion picture had to do at the box office was not just recoup the money that was spent on making the motion picture, but all the stuff that went into phase two. Right. So Karen and I are huge fans, uh, not just of the motion picture, but Star Trek in general. And, you know, when when we all three of us start talking about star trek we start with kirk and spock and mccoy the original series and you know we've had discussions offline from that series on to discovery uh picard most recently the films not all the films but most of the films and um you know there's divergences on our opinion of those properties under the banner of star trek I think I'm one of the few people that like Picard, for example. But <laughs> uh, it was interesting. Uh, you know, Karen and I have been doing a lot of research. I have all these books that I've collected over the years. The Making of Star Trek, the Motion Picture by Susan Sackett. Star Trek Phase Two, the Lost Series, Judith uh, and Garfield, Reeves, Stevens, and, and a couple of others. And it's interesting in that. You know, if we go back to the original series, the first season was great. And then 
you know, there was talk about budgets and uh, time slots and the whole campaign to resurrect Star Trek, right? The letter writing and, and all that stuff. I grok Spock. Uh, we got a second season out of it. Uh, but Gene, I don't know. There, there's varying accounts of what Gene Roddenberry thought about Star Trek at that point, whether he was kind of boxed in or if he wanted to go out and do different things. And he did have other intellectual properties, the Quester tapes and, you know, some of the other things that he tried to put out there after Star Trek. But once the decision was made to give it a third season, they knew that they were going to cut budgets and they, Gene left, you know, at one point he was going to come back, but then it's like, no. And uh, Shatner was saying in his book, Star Trek Movie Memories, that it was very apparent to the actors and the cameramen and everything that Star Trek you know, just being pooed on by the network and the studio. And, you know, the money just wasn't there. And it was very hard to go to work every day on those first or those last couple of episodes. But there was talk about a motion picture, even back when the third season was still coming to a close. They wanted to do some kind of a film. And this was before Star Wars had come out, but they just never really you know, created anything out of it. It was more talk and and, uh, wishful thinking. Then the series, you know, to go into syndication, you needed 100 episodes. Well, it came in under 100 of 79 episodes, but they still threw it out to syndication and it exploded worldwide in syndication. There's a story that Nimoy, one of his books wrote, where he's filming uh, the Golden Meir uh, story, a woman called Golda. And he's out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, they're filming, and they were talking about Star Trek II at that time, but he's out there with Harv Bennett. And they're uh, like in a Moroccan cafe out in the middle of nowhere. And they bring him his soup, and in the soup made out of crackers, this is a Star Trek emblem. Nobody said anything <laughs> to him. Nobody, you know, they just serve the, you know, thank you. So it was a worldwide global phenomenon. And there are accounts that say, well, you know, 77 hits. Star Wars explodes. There's also talk, and I I didn't know this until I started reading some of these books that I've had forever, that Close Encounters influenced, had an influence on uh, Paramount's decision to do the motion picture. And I think back because, right, Close Encounters wasn't like laser swords and pistols. It was... So whatever the premise... Yeah, whatever it is that pushed them to. Yeah. But I think I think Close Encounters was a, it was a better story. It was more grounded. People could relate to it. Uh, you know, again, I guess it depends on where you're coming from because the box office for the motion picture was phenomenal. And uh, you know, as a lifelong Star Trek fan, I, I go into the conventions too because I remember Jimmy Doohan would tell it like it is. Jimmy wouldn't mince words. He, you know, do you like Shatner? Do you get along with Shatner? Hell no, that pompous ass. <laughs> but um, when the motion picture hit, I remember going to a drive-in down in Paramount, Southern California, and the new thing was to be able to listen to the movie on the radio. And my uncle, Gary, had a pretty sweet sound system in his Pinto. <laughs> so there we were in our pinto watching the motion picture. The unfortunate thing is that the V'ger cloud was so dark in that drive-in, it was hard to really take it all in. One of the things I appreciate about the DVD that they came out with the director's cut, Robert Oh, it's White. beautiful. Ah, what a difference. Visually, the story is pretty much still the same. And one of the things that I enjoyed about the story you see seeds of Star Trek to come. You know, we were talking about this uh, offline, the uh, Ilea story with uh, Decker. And uh, Karen, for, for those that are not in the know, Commander Decker is the son of... Oh, Matt Decker from Doomsday Machine. From the Doomsday Machine. And, and they, uh, they were going to have a scene where he talked about his dad, but... That got cut. A lot of the personal scenes, unfortunately, for the characters got cut in favor of showing the V'ger cloud. Right. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, there there are all these connective tissues that we we do see, you know, to me, Decker and Ilea, that's that's Riker and Troy. 
that, that's the oh, yeah. of, right where they're going to go with that relationship it's unfortunate some of the more personal stuff didn't make it on to the screen well i mean that's that i think that's the big thing because hi uh, roddenberry said this is all about characters and it's all about their relationships and blah 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 yeah but if you're going to cut that to show kirk and scott flying around the enterprise for a half hour or Spock flying through V'ger or the Enterprise flying through V'ger for an hour and a half. You know, that, uh, I think they got more enamored with the special effects than they did with the characters at that point. So uh, I'll say that, okay, I, at one time I was sort of in that camp about the fly around the Enterprise when I was younger. It is only five and a half minutes. I timed it the last time I watched it. Yeah, but it just seems like a half hour. When I was a kid, the, the first time I watched it, I was sitting there going, wow, this is kind of long. And the second time I went to the theater, I had to go to the bathroom. I said, okay, I know just when to go. I got up. I went to the bathroom. I went to the concession stand. I got some milk duds and a Coke. I came back, and they, and they were just starting to land the pod to get into the Enterprise. So I was like, this is great. But as I've gotten older, I've really come to appreciate that sequence because it's sort of like, and I know other people have said this, and it, it's true. I think it's sort of like Kirk seeing his his old love again and he sees her and he's mm-hmm. like oh it's so beautiful and I'm coming back home and there she is and she's you know he's right. and it gives the fans a chance to appreciate oh here's the Enterprise it's the Enterprise you love a little different and it, I don't know I, I I like that scene now I will agree a lot of the V'ger scenes do go on quite a while and they mm-hmm. I do think they were just trying to highlight a lot of the special effects but I think like watching the director's cut and it's so cleaned up and so nice. And I compared the director's cut and the theatrical cut. They don't uh, embellish too much in the director's cut because they had no. some nice effects by like Doug Trumbull and John Dykstra. Mm-hmm. And they did some really, some good stuff that holds up even today. Um, so, I, but, but it is after a while, like, it gets kind of long. I think it's more like enhancements is what they did. You know, they brightened up the ship. They kind of tightened things here and there. Well, the well, scenes on Vulcan are really nice now. Well, yeah. let's let's talk a little bit about Robert Wise. Oh, wow, yeah. Because, I mean, you see interviews with Robert Wise, and he did not have a lot of fun making Star Trek The Motion Picture and, you know, butting heads and having changes and all that. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think I read somewhere that at some point, you know, they, they delayed this thing enough that... Nimoy and Shatner had clauses in their contract where they would have final script approval or, you know, like executive producer type yeah. positions. And I think that drove him crazy as well. I know it drove like uh, David Gerald crazy on uh, Trouble with Troubles and definitely Harlan Ellison on City on the Edge Forever. Or he'd complain about Shatner would come in and count all his lines and make sure he had as much <laughs> as or more than Nimoy. And, you know, I'm sure that kind of stuff kind of went on into the motion picture because it wasn't that much, that long after the series, what, 10 years? But, you know, Robert Wise is a classic director. I mean, Day of the Earth Stood Still and, you know, all the other films he's worked on. And so he was a big name to bring on for Star Trek The Motion Picture. But I don't think they really gave him the respect or leeway to do what he really wanted with it, which I think led to that director's cut. Yeah, well, everything I've, I've read and, and heard in interviews is that um, really the movie probably couldn't have been made or made as good as it was if Robert Weiss hadn't been there because he had right. the kind of maturity and steady hand to, to try and keep people in line. But yeah, of course, you've got Roddenberry trying to exert his control. They went in with a script that was only two-thirds done because they really didn't have an ending uh, that was, you know, fleshed out yet. And then, yeah, like you're saying, Bob, at a certain point, uh, it was taking so long, especially because the special effects, the first group that they went to for special effects, the Robert Abel group, they weren't able to deliver the effects and they had a hard deadline. They had told all the distributors, hey, we're going to have this by December of 79 for you. 
and they couldn't get those effects delivered and they, they didn't have their ending figured out. And then, of course, the thing with Shatner and, and Nimoy in their contracts. So they were able to come in and want to make changes to the script. So, yeah, he's got this insane mix of all these people trying to exert control. He doesn't know if the effects are going to get done. And, and they had some things getting done right to the wire. Um, right. There's there's this great shot in one of the extras on one of the discs where they have all these cases of film lined up in this big warehouse and they're warehouse. waiting for that last reel to like be ready to go so they can sh- put it in the, the cases and, and you know put them on planes and send them out. So that mm-hmm. poor man, no wonder he had bad memories. Now I will say when he worked on the director's edition. Uh, there was a number of people he worked with. I, I know one of them was Darren Docterman, who does the Inglorious Trek, Trexperts podcast, and those guys are great. Um, but he had a, actually had a good experience going back and doing the director's edition and being able to put in a lot of the things that he wanted to do, you know, but couldn't get completed uh, for the, the theatrical version. But yeah, you know, what a great guy. And, and one of the funny things, uh, too, was Wise started out as an editor. And he was an editor on Citizen Kane. He won an Academy Award for that. Uh, but I guess there was a little bit of bad blood between him and Orson Welles. And, well, Paramount got Orson Welles to do, the, you know, the trailers, uh, the commercials for uh, Star Trek. And I guess... At, at, for a, a little bit there, Orson Welles didn't want to read the line of Robert Weiss film. He was like, ah, I don't want to say this. It's fun to go back and watch those trailers, and it's like Orson Welles doing a Star Trek trailer. It's like, what right. the hell? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I think, you know, maybe if they did give him a little more leeway, that maybe, because I think, you know, he was definitely interested in the character part of it. And he did have the uh, he did have the respect for the series and the characters and what it had come before. He was just part of a committee, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, you can tell that this is a flawed film. I don't get me wrong; I really enjoy the film, but it's it's got flaws. Um, one of the things, like you said, there are some of these uh, long sequences with Viger that really don't necessarily pay off you just see a lot of people with their mouths wide open staring at a screen and stuff like that and you know i think there would have it would have been nice to have some more character beats for the secondary characters we don't get a lot for you know uhura or sulu or Chekhov really to do well you know the, the interesting thing when i was watching the bonus features is there was like some kind of thing between sulu and ilea <laughs> Where yeah, I don't know yeah. if he was infatuated by her or what, but you know maybe George Takei said oh, I'm not doing that. But there were yeah there were shots of him just like looking at her all moon eyed and you know well, not being able to function to because he's being distracted by her. Yeah, Ilya's a Delton, and I guess they're a very sensual species, and so she had to have her oath of celibacy on file with Starfleet Command. Which she says in the beginning, you know, she gets on the bridge, oh, my oath of celibacy is uh, registered. Um, you know, as far as, like, um, Robert Weiss and Nimoy and Shatner, yeah, who knows, maybe Nimoy and Shatner added some good stuff to the story for Kirk and Spock. Yeah, I think they did. I mean, the whole thing with Spock, uh, and then, and I think they cut some of it out for the theatrical version some of it remained but with Spock shedding a tear for V'ger and I mean the thing about this movie one of the things that makes it important to Star Trek is the character arc for Spock Mm -hmm. you know he I mean he's gone off to Vulcan to rid himself of his emotional side right uh, through the colonar uh, he he senses V'ger and he feels like, oh, this this actually might be my pathway to that. And he heads off to the Enterprise to go with them to intercept V'ger. But it's only through trying to mind meld with V'ger that he realizes that um, V'ger is not perfect, not because it can't feel emotion. That right. and his answer has been with him all along. That he, you know, by bringing those two sides together 
is really yes. what he needs, you know, to, to welcome his human side and, mm-hmm. you know, accept it. Well, he should, he should have learned all that from Nomad, right? <laughs> trying to sterilize he anything really that wasn't perfect nomad that much but well, uh, he, he mind melded with it he did uh, i do want to say that as far as harlan ellison goes i mean harlan ellison would argue with his own fart so uh, you know just because he didn't have a high opinion of shatner nimoy uh is neither here nor there um you know what i understood is that there was back and forth on uh, write the script and you know rewrites would come in the day of shooting and so that's why there was little or no rehearsal because they were getting pages just before they were getting ready to film mm-hmm. um, as far as the special effects go I'm a I always have been always will be a huge fan of Kirk looking at the Enterprise for the first time and the soundtrack as it plays around it every time I buy a new car I play that when I'm looking at the car. Dun, da, da, dun, da, da, da. Uh, I, I imagine that's how my wife saw me uh, while we were getting married up at the altar. Dun, da, 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 da. Um, yeah, look, to me, it was great to have, you know, the big three back together. McCoy throwing it to Spock. Kirk telling him to behave. You know, you had Ilea, this Delton who became like a... a robot uh, uh android hybrid um to me one of the best shots and, and it's still exciting is when the V'ger probe comes on the enterprise and it's like a, almost like a stationary bolt of lightning that you know zips around uh the the bridge of the enterprise throwing out little you know pieces of static electricity and the people going blah, 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 blah. absolutely i will not interfere with it <laughs> <laughs> Probably one of Walter's best lines right. ever. But then again, the cool part of that is when it stops. Because you've got all this, you know, the, the, the audio totally changes and everything comes back to normal. And that one, uh, well, Ilea disappears, right? It's yeah. Ilea. And yeah, she was holding a tricorder or whatever. Yeah. And it just falls to the ground, crack, and total silence. After you've had, you know, five minutes of and all this other noise going on. Right. That was cool. That's how I define unwarranted. Yeah, well, you know, that's the thing about Decker. I mean, I think, you know, you're talking about getting Kirk and Spock and McCoy back together. And, of course, Spock doesn't have his human side, so he's kind of like an automaton walking through the thing. Uh McCoy is, like, overly bitter, you know, at certain parts. And then Kirk is like blowing it left and right because he's not familiar with the Enterprise and he hasn't logged any star time star time in, you know, two years or whatever. And so they aren't really Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. And yeah. then you've got Decker in there who's a total ass and totally emphasized by that one point where it's like... He waited half the movie to throw that thing at Kirk. You know, this is how I define well, you know, unwarranted. But it's like, uh, you know, that's that was just it. It was like Star Trek was all about the Kirk Spock McCoy dynamic, and it was sidelined or waylaid or whatever during this movie. Yeah, but I think I think that's part of the beauty. Oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead, Larry. I was going to say I think part of the beauty is there's a payoff. Uh, you know, like in Star Trek 2 when they're on the Kobayashi Maru and Spock dies. And it's like, whoa, wait a minute. Oh, the payoff is, no, he didn't die. But he does die later on in the film. In this, it's like Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. Um, okay, why is McCoy so pissed off? Well, he's been drafted. He didn't want to be part of this crew and mission, but it's Kirk saying, I need your bones. So he joins up. Spock. Spock is more colder than his father was on on the series Sarek. And what is Spock's journey? What is his where is he going with this? You know, at one point Kirk tells McCoy or McCoy tells Kirk, watch Spock because you know, he might not have the ship's best interest at heart. So you're like, what's going on here? And then, you know, Kirk had this huge well, I won't say what he had, but uh, excitement to be back on the bridge of the Enterprise at any cost. 
At one point, he says, oh, yeah, uh, Nagura gave me the Enterprise back. And Scotty looks at him and says, I don't think he gave you the Enterprise back that easily, sir. So there's all these dynamics of these characters that we know, but yet we don't know because it's mm -hmm. been five, ten, six years. Where are, are they now? The payoff at the end of the film is when they need to coagulate and come together and be that crew. It, it, to me, it paid off in aces. Yeah, that's that's what I think is the, the thing, the key, is that when we first meet them, they're not the crew we remember because Kirk is not a very good guy at the beginning of the movie. No. He is very selfish. He's motivated out of his own ego. Um, and he's it's funny to me, he's kind of going through a midlife crisis at the beginning of this film, and they repeat that in Wrath of Khan, too. It's almost like, oh, it's like we kind of forgot he already had his midlife crisis. He's doing it again. It's like, didn't you learn anything from the first movie? It's like, don't go back to a desk job. You're no good at it, you know? But, yeah, in this movie, he's... He's a bridge, damn it. I know. He's, he's, he's definitely, he's, a, he's self-centered. He wants the ship back. Now, granted, he probably is the one guy in the universe who can, you know, work his way out of anything, so he, he, it's like in the deleted scenes and the one they put back in the director's cut, you know, when he first goes up to the bridge and he meets the crew, uh, you know, he says, where's the captain? And then he leaves and one guy says, you know, it's not fair to Decker. He's been, you know, putting this ship together for months and blah, blah, blah. And Uhura says, hey, you know, our chances of surviving probably just doubled. So on one hand, yeah, he's probably the right man for the job, but he he is a jerk the way he treats uh, Decker, but then once Spock right. comes aboard and once McCoy is there, it is like you said, Larry. It's sort of like okay, only when they are all together aboard that ship can they be their best uh, person, right? So that's sort of what we right. what we get out of it. Um, and yeah, I feel bad and for I De think Kirk Decker. Kirk is at his best. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I was just going to say I think Kirk is at his best with McCoy and Spock at his side. The rest of the crew as well, Scotty and Uhura. And yeah, I think Bob made a good point with bringing Decker on. And it would have been interesting, you know, at one point Nimoy wasn't signed on for the film, nor phase two. Yeah. There was a disagreement he had with the studio and, you know, they, they figured out what's what and got him on board, but there was going to be a Vulcan called the Zon, X-O-N. And uh, the actor who was cast for that, they put him on board that... Uh, Station, oh, yeah, station Epsilon um, 9. Epsilon, yeah. Um, but it would have been interesting. What if uh, Shatner never signed on and, and Decker was the captain of the Enterprise? What would have happened? Where would that story have gone? He would have taken the ship and rammed it down V'ger's throat. <laughs> <laughs> and then Bob would have had the action movie he wanted. There you go. Yeah. Maybe that's what we needed. <laughs> no, you know, I, I mean, I think, um, yeah, they could have tightened this movie up, but I, and I know in some ways it's a rehash of, of the Changeling. Um, I don't think it's the greatest idea they ever had, mm -hmm. uh, but I, I don't know. I enjoy it. I like the, the overall sense of the movie. I like the visuals, um, you know, for, for what it was. Um, I enjoy it. I love the Jerry Goldsmith score. I listen to that score yeah. all the time. Um, well, yeah, I, I do agree that's a highlight, and the score is excellent. Yeah. It's I told a, it's, you guys, every time I buy a new car, it's a beautiful score. Um, and yeah, like Larry was saying, you know, they took a lot of stuff. Well, not a lot, but they took some things from this and wedged it into next gen well that score the theme the score so, exactly yeah it's so funny because you know everybody thinks oh da, 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 da. that's the next generation theme it's like no that's the theme from star trek the motion picture i know shatner one time got up on stage and said you know they stole my music and they used it mm -hmm. in next generation that's not patrick stewart's music that's my music um, I was at a convention once and someone had said, why did you guys use the Next Generation theme song for the motion picture? He says, well, we predate them by 10 years. That's our theme. They they took our theme. I don't know why, you know, Shatner does his thing. But. Well, wa watching the motion picture for the first time in quite a while, I got to say, it's like I've been used to that being the Next Generation theme. So to see it as the theme for the movie, it almost seemed out of place. 
even though they were the first ones to do it. Like, wait, did I put in a next generation disc instead of Star Trek the Motion Picture? What is this? What am I watching? Why are they wearing those costumes? Yeah. What is going on? Oh my on? god. I can see Decker's pee pee. Wait, wait a minute. What is that? A uniform or a. Uh, yeah, they were form fitting. Well, they were pajamas, basically. <laughs> yeah, underoos. So how are you gonna yeah. do how are you gonna have any kind of action when you're wearing pajamas? Oh, it's a different kind of action, my friend. Oh, well, that's why that's why they had to change the uniforms for Star Trek Two. I will say I think Shatner's Admiral uniform looked pretty good with the, the yeah. gray and the white. The Admiral uniform was good and then later on he had the uh, the white uniform shirt on. Oh the the short sleeve and he still had the pajama pants, but he had the uh, short sleeve and that for him it looked better. You know than, yeah. than the rest of them. Yeah, those. I'm, I'm a huge fan of the Ilea probe uniform. I mean, that, that, to me, uh, up there with the Enterprise. Probe in that uniform. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, and it, yeah, I've already talked about the ship. I think the ship redesign was was great. Um, and the Klingon ships too. They did a just a little, yeah. you know, more detailing. Yeah, added more Jeffers. detail to it. I was gonna say. But the Enterprise, I know when ILM got a hold of the special effects, they weren't a big fan of the design of the Enterprise, which I think was kind of what led it to be blown up in Star Trek Three. But um, <laughs> yeah, they just, they really weren't, just the way of films and things, which I, I think it's an iconic ship. And I think yeah. it looks yeah. great, even in the TV series on screen. And then in the motion picture and, and Wrath of Khan, you know, just the angles that you can get and all that is it looks great. But for some reason, uh, there are people at ILM that just weren't big fans of it, which is why I, I started. This is why you got like the Romulan bird of prey in most of uh, in a, a chunk of Star Trek three and all of Star Trek four. Do you think it had to do with that sort of pearlescent finish it had on it? Maybe. I mean, I think they were, you know, they were more into the Star Wars overly detailed, you know, every little piece Ow. of the ship has to have a little detail on it. And the Star and the Enterprise is just very clean. Yeah, it's smooth. Yeah. I mean, it's just yeah. a smooth looking smooth Which if you go ship. to uh you know, go to some port and see a battleship, I mean, that's how they look, right? The hull is all they've got the guns and everything on top, but I mean the hull's all smooth and, you know, uh -huh. same type of thing. And that's kind of what the Enterprise was supposed to be, you know, like an aircraft right. carrier or whatever. But, um, yeah. I mean, you can tell that was the inspiration because the first ships that, uh, they, I mean, they named those ships after U.S. carriers, a lot, most of them anyway, the, the yeah. initial ones. So, huh. Well, I remember when the first model for the, for the Enterprise came out, it was done by Matchbox. And prior to that, it was AMT did the stuff for the television show. So Matchbox did this beautiful rendition of the Enterprise. The uh, nacelles had like a, a rainbow sticker. It was kind of like glittery. My friend James got it at a convention and he put that thing together. Then it was Star Trek. Must have been two or three. AMT got the rights back and they did this. And, and all the ships have had that since, even the Ertl models, like an Aztec kind of square rectangular printing on the ship. So it's like almost like the space shuttle. There's all these tiles oh, yeah. that make up the skin or the hull of the Enterprise. Well, yeah, I remember having the AMT model, the original AMT models when they came out. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, they had the uh, Enterprise and they had the Klingon ship and they had the Romulan Bird of Prey. And I think they came out with a set which was like a phaser, a tricorder, and a communicator. Yep. Yes. Yeah. And then they came out with Spock. Yeah. Like a Spock model. With that serpent thing on the yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, and well, even now, I mean, you can get really nice Enterprise models from was it Polar Lights and Yeah, Polar Lights has the licensing for the for the models now. Eagle Moss has the diecast metal uh, stuff going on. Well, I remember after uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture came out, uh, my brother, Steve, who is 
you know, uh, now an engineer, but always a gearhead. I had these two, I, I had the, uh, the AMT, the Enterprise and the the Klingon ship over my bed so he said let's take the Klingon ship and you know there's a part in the movie where they launch a torpedo out the rear of the Klingon ship so he goes let's put a torpedo in the back of the ship so he went in there and he put an LED in the back of the Klingon ship and a little button in the front so I could press the button and light up the torpedo tube in the back of the ship that's cool that was pretty cool that was cool. It had an extra feature. That was a Batmobile <laughs> moment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The rear. You know, I will say too, uh, the mind meld scene for Spock. I, you know, the, the special effects are kind of rudimentary of him out in space in the spacesuit and stuff. Uh, whether it's some form of dynamation or, or what. I know this whole thing was before computer animation. But I kind of like the scene going through the Beedger orifice and, yeah, you know, and, and going through the digitized um, oh, species yeah. and or ships that Beedger had, uh, like, teleported or absorbed. I don't quite oh, know the... Yeah, because I guess he digitized. It was like when he digitized the Klingon ships, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, there was also in the uh, deleted scenes on the Blu-ray, I think it was, um, there's a scene where Kirk suits up and he's yeah. going to go out and rescue Spock whereas in right. the final version Spock just gets like spit out of Feeger sphincter or whatever and yeah. floats back to the Enterprise up. but you know I mean that might have been more good character development if yeah you had Kirk throwing on the suit and going off to rescue his buddy you know well it's funny in the television version that they put together um they showed that scene of Kirk coming out of the hatch, but what they didn't do, because they never put in the special effects to mask out the, all the carpentry around oh. him. So on TV, you actually saw the, you know, the unfinished set. So he's not going into space. He's going into out of the hatch, and then here's all these two-by-fours and stuff. <laughs> he's gone back in time yeah. to 20th century Hollywood. Yeah, that's the, you know, it was funny too, because they had tried before they did the Spock mind meld, there was going to be a scene with something called the uh, memory wall in V'ger. And I guess it was going to be the equivalent where he would have all these, V'ger would have all these memories stored and they had built this big set with a wall with all these lights on it. And they did all these tests with, you know, it was going to be Kirk and Spock and they just couldn't get the thing together. Uh, mm-hmm. So they went with the the V'ger mind meld, which I still thought was effective, even though you could tell the scene from behind where the arms go up is some sort of mannequin or doll, which I don't quite understand why it couldn't be a person. But uh, yeah, yeah, it still seemed effective. Let me ask you guys this, because I doubt we'll ever cover Star Trek five on this podcast. <laughs> you know, here. actually, I wouldn't mind doing that. I'd probably really? have more fun okay. with Star Trek the motion picture. Maybe we'll do some other Star Trek films. I don't know if it deserves its own podcast. Um, well, I tell you what, I'll, I'll save my question then for uh, if and when we cover that. Oh, go ahead, just in case I get vetoed and we don't do it. <laughs> well, I, I was reading in one of the books that, you know, Roddenberry had his ideas of religion and God, and some of those stories kind of carried over into five because God plays a big well, part in that. Yeah. Well, what God does, what does God does. need with a starship? Yeah. Yeah. And that, to me, that's one of my favorite lines. What does God need with a starship? You. And the yeah, alien gets all pissed off. Um, that the three-breasted cat woman. But anyway, that's for another story. <laughs> yeah. um, if they were to give Shatner the ability to do a director's cut for five, because there was talk of like lava men and, you know, because, you know, to be fair to Shatner, there were strikes that were going on, budgets got cut, and all this kind of stuff. Is there something you think that would help that movie, either effects-wise or story-wise, to be a better Star Trek film? You mean if they could, like, scrap the entire thing and start over? No, no. Do like <laughs> Robert Weiss and give, like, a... I know, I know. There, well, she- there are a few scenes in that that I think are good, but... I don't know that the whole thing is so 
I don't, I'll, I'm going to let Bob take this one. Well, I don't know. How do I take this one? Um, <laughs> I know, like, well, there's no right or wrong answer. When I mean, those two disc DVD sets were coming out of all the movies, they did have director's cuts on every one of them, but not on Star Trek V. And Shatner was kind right. of upset that he couldn't go back and and do a director's cut. And I don't know why that was, or if they just didn't want to work with him, <laughs> or they didn't want to, you know, go didn't go on and want to go back and revisit the movie. But um, you know, I, I haven't watched the. I, I got to admit, I haven't watched the movie probably in decades. Mm-hmm. But you know, it had its moments, and you could see that he was trying to give everybody kind of their own little scene in the movie and trying to spread it around. And, uh, you know, Uhura was probably a few years past where she should have been doing that nude dance scene. But, um, Oh, I had no problem with that, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, um, I, I, will say I don't know. Was, I, I think I, we, maybe we should do an episode on it cause I should probably go back and look at it again at some point. Because I'm like you, I haven't seen five in a long time. But I will say that I do have a book, The Making of Star Trek Five, and I think it was Lisbeth Shatner that wrote that. And so she was far more endearing <laughs> as to why things didn't work the way her dad wanted uh, them to work. So that might be fun. So we have not covered Wrath of Khan, is that correct? We have that not done correct. Wrath of Khan. Isn't that kind of crazy? We did Star Trek the motion picture before Wrath of Khan. Well, it came first, but... And now we're talking about doing Star Trek V, and we haven't done Wrath of Khan? Well, Well, I mean, Wrath of Khan, I would say, you know, probably going forward, you know, two, four, five are all worth doing. Maybe three and five could be one episode, (laughs) two and four their own, but... We can talk about that offline. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, any final thoughts on the motion picture, my friends? Hmm. Well, go ahead, Bob. <laughs> I'm still thinking. Uh, well, I mean, don't get me wrong. I am a big Star Trek fan. I love this franchise. I was just, like I said, motion picture was basically... It served its purpose of getting the band back together and establishing Star Trek in the theaters and, you know, giving it big budgets. But, I th- you know, as far as I'm concerned, the movies really took off when Wrath of Khan came out. And it was really, you know, if they started with Wrath of Khan, I think that would have been excellent. But those are my thoughts. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah, I would I would agree with with uh, the idea that it's it's definitely not a perfect movie, and I I know they were kind of going for a more intellectual film. I will say I think of of all the Star Trek movies, it probably kept more with the theme from the original series. In that you know here's something we don't understand, it's dangerous, we're investigating it, and it was less of a you know, action adventure and more kept that theme of uh, trying to explore and understand. I mean, don't get me wrong. They had plenty of action in a lot of the episodes, but I like the idea that they were trying to understand and, and figure things out. Um, but yeah, I can see where, you know, it's a little slow in some places. Um, but I do kind of miss, I think we've started getting more science fiction films that are uh, exploring themes now and are not so much all trying to be copies of Star Wars, which is good. We need we need a range of science fiction um, right. out there. And, uh, you know, I, I would also highly recommend anybody, if they're interested, to go out and look for the director's cut because it is such a nice version of this film, I really love watching it, especially things like the scenes on Vulcan, where you oh, you know yes. 
it vastly improves the experience or even uh, the scenes with Starfleet headquarters. It just looks so much better. So, well, is the, uh, is the, is the TV version available anywhere? Uh, that's a good question. Cause I, I remember liking that. Yeah. Whatever I don't know changes if they, they made. put that on a DVD anywhere. I don't think so. I think the, the TV version scenes are available on a bonus disc. I think you're right. On the director's cut. I think uh, maybe on VHS, but not on Blu-ray or DVD. Interesting. Yeah, uh, I I agree, Karen. There's a lot of little enhancements that the director's cut did. Um, you know, Kirk's shuttle coming into Starfleet. They kind of opened it up a little. It's yeah. not as closed. Um, the wormhole effect. They kind of tightened that up and and brightened it up and you know fixed the explosion. Um, it's kind of when they redid the special effects for the original series, they tried to keep it seamless. And so it's not like the special edition of Star Wars where you have all this digital stuff competing with all the practical effects and it's mm-hmm. just such an eyesore. Yeah. And don't get me wrong, I love Star Wars, but it's so hard to, to watch that special effects, you know, with the do-back giraffe thing and the... Anyway. Yeah, yeah. That's for another conversation. I, I think they kept with trying to keep things look like December of '79. Yeah, it was respectful. Uh, they did. They didn't pull a Guido shot first move. <laughs> oh, <laughs> exactly. And wasn't there a version I, uh, of like ET where the army guys they erased all their guns and put flashlights in their hands or something? Oh crap. God, I know. It's Seriously, like, I didn't hear yeah. about. That. Oh yeah, they did that. Well. Um, you know, I'm forever going to be a fan. Do I love Star Wars or uh, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan? Absolutely. And I look forward to us talking about that and everything that went into it. Um, I think any of the issues that people have with the motion picture, you know, uh, it was going to be a TV show, then a movie, then a TV show, then a movie. Then they wanted to keep elements of the TV show in the movie, but then the movie had to be less about a TV show and more about a movie. <laughs> And it wanted to be more Star Wars. No, Close Encounters. No, 2001. No, you know, and then Roddenberry. Too many cooks in the kitchen with Roddenberry and Robert Weiss and then the writers. And, uh, you know, there, there was discussion or a story I wrote where Nimoy would stop filming and go to Robert Weiss's house at 7.30 p.m. every night of the week to work on Spock's uh, scenes in the film. Um Everything that worked against the film, I think it's still a good film. I've watched it three times in the last month preparing for this. And there are very few movies that I will watch three times in a month uh, preparing. I will disclose in the next podcast, I was watching a movie for our next podcast that we record. And I fell asleep twice watching that movie. Um, So uh, I actually found a rare print of one of the films for the next episode. Oh. I'll just leave it at that. Um, and then there, there is a version of, uh, well, we'll get into the next podcast when we get into the next podcast. So as far as my love of Trek, we, we all love Trek, but I mean, I really love Star Trek. Um, you know, me and my friend James, we did a fan club in high school. We had membership cards. He drew out sketches for ships and, you know, we would we would save all our money to go out to San Francisco to a Hilton hotel because, you know, a, a Trek convention was there. And, you know, back then it wasn't just Star Trek. It was, you know, whoever they could get to go. So you had people from DC Comics, Marvel Comics, Doctor Who, Star Trek, uh, you know, whatever. Um, it, it was just a fantastic period in time. There was no CGI. I was young, stupid. Maybe I didn't know any better. <laughs> but um, I had a lot of fun and fun memories watching this in a Pinto and a you know, drive-in that doesn't exist anymore in Southern California. Come on. Um, so, yeah, if you haven't seen Star Trek, the motion picture, we spoiled the hell out of it for you. Uh, but go ahead and do yourself a favor and watch it. Oh, hey, uh, spoiler alert. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I now, you had one more. into the podcast, we'll give you a spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, true. Well, look, uh, no spoiler alerts here. We're going to go into our sensor suite and uh, our our uh, 
are uh, you're not a spy satellite. Reconnaissance yeah, officer. You're a reconnaissance officer. Reconnaissance officer, Karen. What do you have to share with us this podcast? Well, appropriate for this particular podcast, one of my sources of information is this hefty uh, book that I got here that nobody can see except you guys, um, called Return to Tomorrow, the Filming of Star Trek, the Motion Picture, an Oral History by Preston Neal Jones. Now, this book, uh, Larry, I know you have it as well. Yes. Uh, We picked this up on one of our trips to uh, Monster Palooza convention many years ago in Burbank at the uh, wonderful Creature Features store. used to be there. I miss it very much yeah uh, but uh, this is an awesome book I, I did check and look to see if you can buy it there are some places that have it including Amazon but you will pay a pretty penny my friends for this book uh, but this is a let's see over 600 pages so if you really want to know every single detail about how <laughs> star trek the motion picture came to be including like what light bulbs were used inside the warp core engine uh and i'm not kidding about that uh you <laughs> will read this book and you will find interviews and it's it's just as an oral history it just has different folks talking about different things so it has all the special effects guys it has most of the cast of the movie it has robert wise so it has all the writers the many writers and production people jeffrey katzenberg who was this was his first producing gig so uh it is thorough as bleep um, and has just everything you would ever want to know. And I, I have to make a, an admission. Uh, I, at certain points, kind of would zone out because it got too technical when they started talking about different types of wiring used. Uh, and then I would zone back in when they got into things about what was happening with the cast or the writing. But I think it is an excellent investment if you're a Star Trek fan. So again, return to tomorrow. I'll put a listing on the blog so you get the information about it. Um, super, super detailed and uh, definitely worth it. If you want to know everything, it's got everything about everything about Star Trek, the motion picture. It does. It I does. can attest to that. If you want to know more than we dispense today. <laughs> I think we told you everything you need to know during this podcast, but. Yeah, we have the condensed version. Those wanting to yeah. delve further. Well, we got- uh, uh, Karen had said. Oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, Karen had said, uh, you know, she has a book, Return to Tomorrow, and uh, uh, you can't see it, uh, unfortunately, on this podcast. However, I do want to give a plug. There is a Sensor Sweep all video podcast on our YouTube channel. So if you go to planetapodcast.com, there's going to be a link there. Or if you go to YouTube and just type in Planet 8 Podcast, of course, it's all over the interwebs. You go to our Facebook page, our Twitter page, uh, you'll see a link to it where we don't share this book, but we do share some items in our video sensor suite um, with you, the listeners. We share items as well as our ugly mugs. (laughs) That's right. You get to see us as well as the items. Any last words on Star Trek, the motion picture, my friend? Not for me. No, but I I do think that uh, the video, as far as doing the video podcast, I thought it was a lot of fun. I hope we can do it again. I hope people will tune into it and tell us uh, what they think about it. And... uh, you know, hopefully we can do some more. I thought we had some interesting stories about collectibles. You guys had a very interesting story about a collectible you did not wind up collecting. So I think that'll be fun for people to listen to. That was an interesting story. I definitely want to check that out. That was uh, scary, uh, interesting, and ultimately funny. Uh, I tell you guys what, if, if you do give us the opportunity to do another video podcast... Uh, either Karen and I will show our return to tomorrow book and you'll see just how freaking huge this thing is. 
Okay, you guys, be good to each other. Stay safe. On that note, this will conclude this transmission from Planet 8. We would like to thank all of our intergalactic audience for listening. Be sure to head on over to our website at www.planet8podcast.blogspot.com where you can get more information on this episode's topic. For more conversation, find us on Twitter at Planet8Cast. Or on Facebook at facebook.com slash planet8podcast. We want to thank you guys for tuning in each and every episode. We look forward to your input and opinions. Until next time, this is Planet 8, signing off. End transmission. By George, he's got it. It is the end. is about to wipe out every living thing on Earth. Now, what do you suggest we do? Spank it.